if you would please open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, where we left off there at verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be picking back up here in verse 17. You know, God in his love and his grace and his mercy really helped us out by making sure that his word was written down for us, that we have the Bible that we can have to hold and to read and to meditate on and just ponder and look up things about life that he has given us. That we didn't have to wait to get to a Sunday only to hear the word of God. You didn't have to go and to be able to get to someone who God is using, a prophet or a, an apostle that we talked about, a teacher, a pastor, to be able to teach. That you can, God continues to use them, yes, but at the same time has been given you and I the word of God to be able to sit as the Bible, to open it up, not just to simply know it, not to simply for knowledge, not simply just to say that you know the doctrine, you know what the verses are and all these things, but the Bible was given so that we can obey his word, to know it and to obey it, to apply it. It's not about just knowledge, it is about application, because if it's just knowledge, you're just a Pharisee of the Pharisee. But it's the application as a child of God. There's one thing to hear dad and mom say something, but if you don't obey and do it, there's going to be conflict. There's not going to be unity as we've learned in the scripture. But we must study the word of God. But here and today we'll see again why in the word of God there, there's these key words say therefore and wherefore and buts and these things tell us they must be something that we must take note of. As we've learned, the first three chapters are all doctrinal, all the foundation of who Christ is and the knowledge we need to understand. But in chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's all about application. How do you apply that to a Christian life, daily life? Not just a Sunday life, but a life that's da daily throughout the week, throughout the hours of that week. Paul was saying, here is what Christ has done for you. Now, in light of this, here is what you ought to do for Christ. Christ, out of his love, out of his grace, out of his mercy, has done this. Now, out of a natural response, out of that love from Christ, our love is to do what for Christ? And Paul lines this out, and we started last week, in the fact that we are to be in unity as children of God. We're to be in unity. There should be no division. We must die of self and live for others. We live for Christ and live for others. We're to love God and love others. That is what we're to do to keep that unity. And we are to be doers of the word, not just hearers as we see in James. The fact that we have been called in Christ that we saw in, in chapter 1 verse 18 ought to motivate us to walk in unity that we learn in the first 16 verses of chapter 4. Uh, chapter four. And the fact that we have been raised from the dead, and we saw that in Ephesians chapter 2 in the first, I think, 10 verses, we should motivate us to walk now, we see today, walk in purity 
and holiness, to be holy, the desire to be holy, that we sang today out of our hearts. We sang and lifted our voices. We want to be holy, 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 holy. We want to walk in purity as we walk in our daily lives. And we will see that today in our verses in the end of chapter 4 and even into a little bit into chapter 5. Even Paul, when he wrote into Romans, he says, walk in the newness of life, Romans 6, 4. Because when you become a child of God, there is a new life. You're a new creation. You're born again. There should have been a change in your life. And if there wasn't a change, you must question if you are saved or not. Because there should be a newness, that could, a freshness, a, something different about you when you come to Christ. We are all alive in Christ. We're no longer dead in sins. And therefore, we, there must be a change in our life in Christ. We, are to, we will see today we are to put off. We are supposed to put off the old man and we are to put on the new man. We are to get rid of the, the dead, stinky, sinful clothes, the grave clothes, and we are to put on the new clothes, that, of, the clothes of righteousness that God has given you and I. So there's an action of getting rid of something, but also you need to fill that void, the emptiness of putting on Christ, putting on his righteousness and holiness in your life. There's an action that you and I must take in that relationship. And we start off here in verse 17 through 19 here. He says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. That you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the fertility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened. Being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their hearts. The Ephesian believers who were Gentiles who came to the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, and they gave their life over, they repented, and they gave their life to Christ. They became born again, a new creation, a new, a new man. The inner man had been changed by God. The Spirit of God came in, sealed them for eternity, and there was it from Gentiles, these unbelievers who did not know things of God, did not want to know the things of God, didn't really care about what, who God or is or is not, and oh, they were changed. They were walking the way according to the flesh, according to the, the things of this world. And then they were changed, these the Ephesian believers. And they were not to walk as the Gentiles do. They were no longer to walk any longer like they used to walk. How did they walk? Well, we see here Paul says they walked in the futility of their mind. Their futility of their thinking. Their thinking was not in line with the word of God. The word here, fertility, we also see it, this word, only one other time in Romans, in, uh, it kind of correlates with Romans 1.21 and also Romans 8.20. But this noun is stands as fertility means a void or a useless aim or an emptiness. So their minds, as a non-believer, aimlessly walked, thought about things throughout their life. Random things, things that are of no value. There was no goal. There was no purpose except the fulfilling of the desires of the flesh. 
the desires and following and being moved by the, the, word, the, the worldliness would move you to do things and see things and respond to things. Their thinking wasn't of any value. It was empty at the end of the day. Have you ever found that with you? When you were a non-believer, you would watch something that was so empty. It was had no value. It was just a worldly production on TV, and you watched it. And at the end, you, oh, isn't that funny? And it's like you look at it as a, non, as a believer now. You look back and go, and you watch that movie again because in your mind, you thought it was a really good movie. And then as a believer, now you look and you go, why did I ever watch that movie as a non-believer? There was no value. What did I think that was funny? I mean, it's, a, it's ridiculous why it, it, your mind has been changed. You no longer see it as a non-believer, which is emptiness. But now as a believer, you see how it was truly just empty. The fertility of the mind. Unbelieving Gentiles failed to attain the true purpose of their mind. And as a believer, what is the true purpose of your mind? But to receive God's revelation of what he has given to you and I to guide us through and, 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 and result in how our conduct and our behavior will be displayed in our lives. That's the purpose of our minds, is to set the, our minds on the things above, the things of God has for us, so that our behavior, our our conduct lines up with the word of God. That's our purpose for our minds. And if our minds focus on anything else, that especially if it goes against the word of God, you are fighting against the purpose of the mind that God has given you. He created you to worship him. He created you to, wor to worship and to obey his word. And your mind goes off and thinks about things, watches things, reads things, meditates on things that go contrary to the word of God. You're fighting against what God has created you to be. And you wonder why you have no peace. You wonder why you have no joy. You wonder why you're unsettled, why you're discontent. Why you're it's because you're pondering on the things that go against the word of God. That's not what God wants for you and I. And since their minds could not receive God's revelation, Paul says their understanding was darkened. Romans 1.21, 2 Corinthians 4.4 will take you back over to that as well. Not only because their minds were so darkened by the things that they meditate on, which was contrary to the word of God, it was also being alienated or separated from the life of the, from the life of that comes from God. God wants, when he came into your life, he gave you life. You thought you had a life before you came to Christ. But once you came to Christ, you then really literally had a life. You actually knew and under, started understanding and drawing to understand what God had for you for His the life that he created in you. And we need to desire to know that life that he has for you. And so Paul's saying to them, you've come to me, you now have life. What's important is continue to grow and to learn of me and to understand and be obedient to what I've showed you so that you don't go back into darkness. You don't go back into the separation, alienation from the things of God, the life that God has given you. And so when you fight against the word of God, you fight against the things of God, you're alienating. You're going back into darkness. And Paul says, don't go back there. 
You used to live it for however long, but then when you got saved, it's a new life. You don't go back. They were alienations because of their ignorance of God. And this is because of the hardening of their hearts, Paul says. They're being insensitive to God and his ways. When you stay ignorant about the things of God, you see what's going to happen. You're going to have darkness in your life. You're going to stay ignorant about the things of God. You're going to be starting to be separated. Or you want to be separated from the things of God, the people of God. You're going to want to keep the distance. You no longer fellowship. You keep by arm's distance. There's no, there's all shallowness there's, in your conversations. There's, there's, there's nothing about your conversation with someone with God because you don't want to be reminded of the things of God. It's very clear, my brothers and sisters, when you see someone who's a non-believer or someone who's a believer who now is going back to the old life, you see these things that Paul talks about and he's warning them about. And this hardening of their hearts, Paul says. Because when, the alien, when you become alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance, be, 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 there's because there's blindness of their hearts. There's a hardening of the heart. They become insensitive to the things of God. And we can't allow that to happen in our lives. Paul says you cannot allow that to happen. You cannot go back to that life because that's what your life was like before you came to Christ. The Christian is not to imitate the life of, of unsaved people around him. Paul says, don't go back and hang and, and learn and to grow and meditate on the things of these unbelievers because then you are going back to the old life. You need to, ch you need to change and move away. Don't allow them to affect you and, and to grip you of those things because they're dead in trespasses and sin, we see in Ephesians 2.1. And while the Christian, a born-again believing Christian, and the explanation, and I should say, has been raised from the dead and has been given eternal life in Christ. You don't go back to the old life. Salvation begins with repentance. What is repentance? A change of mind. What is that change of mind? You weren't interested in the things of God. You wouldn't really want to obey the things of God. You didn't want to hang with people who wanted to talk about God. You didn't even want to listen to music that even referenced God. Anything of God. You, people who are non-believers can't even stand driving down a freeway and looking up and seeing a cross from a distance on land. They'll go to great lengths to go and sue to get rid of the cross because they do not want to be reminded of the things of God. And so what here we see here is salvation begins with repentance, a change in mind. Now you want the things of God. You want to be around the people of God. You want to hear and you want to know. The whole outlook of a person changes when he trusts Christ, including his values, including his goals, including his, the explanation of the meaning of life. How many times have you been in a conversation with a non-believer or even before you got saved? He says, what is the meaning of life? 
Well, apart from God, you won't understand the meaning of life. But with God, you will know all about the things of God that he pertained to life and truth. So why as believers, why would you, Paul is saying, why would you go back to the old life, go hang around with the old non-believers and, and start acting and thinking like that? That's not what we're to do any longer. Because the unsaved man's thinking is fruitless. It's ineffective because it's dark. Oh, so many non-believers think they're enlightened to the things of the philosophy of men today. Oh, I've got my wine and I'm swirling and I'm pondering on the things and the philosophies of men. That's the way the world thinks. Matter of fact, he who thinks he's enlightened by the philosophy of the man are actually encouraged and feel like they have arrived when they reject the things of the Bible and believe that that has no value and there is nothing of value to even read. They think they've actually arrived in their enlightenment of understanding of the man. They don't even realize in reality they're in darkness and aimlessly wandering in this life. It, Romans 1.22 says, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. But they think they are wise. But we see in the scriptures that Satan has blinded the minds of the unsaved. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. And because he does not want to, them to see the truth in Jesus Christ, it is not simply that their eyes are blinded so they cannot see, but their minds are darkened so that they can't even think straight about spiritual matters. Oh, how many times of sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't know God and you can see that they can't even keep their mind straight in what you're trying to impart to them of spiritual matters. They can't even keep focused with you because their minds have been darkened. The Satan has caused them to, to, to be not even sensitive to hearing the things of God. Because they think they've already arrived in their knowledge and understanding as a man. Verse 19, he continues, Paul says, And who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. So Paul continues here, he says, Because of your feelings, because of the lack of sensitivity, because of, of your becoming callous in the things of God, these Gentiles gave themselves over to lewdness and sexuality that was outside of the boundaries of God put. They're willing to go down paths that God says do not go do, do not ponder on these things because those were going to harm you and everyone around you. Don't touch that uncleanness. Don't touch that, that lewdness, that, that, that sensuality that is destroying you and everyone around you. But Paul says their practice as a non-believer is to practice every kind of uncleanliness or impurity with a continual greediness or lust for more. That's how, that's how darkness, that's how sin works. It's never just a little bit. It gives you a little bit and then it says, oh, you, it puts this lust in your flesh to desire more of something. 
indulging, that self-gratification. And when you have that self-gratification that just yearns or lusts for more of something, you're never content with anything. It gets to a point where you're given so self-gratification, you can't even, you, you get darkened by the fact that it affects others around you. Because you're self-imploding. And you've heard me say this from if you've been with us for so long. What the statement that caused me to change and finally be broken is a statement at, um, at a men's conference that was stated. It says, the more you think about yourself, the more miserable you become. That's self-gratification. You're never content. You just want more, more money, more this, more that, more of this. It just, it never ends. And so Paul says, these people, past feelings, their past the past life, was they've been given themselves. They gave themselves. No one took them, forced them. They gave themselves over to lewdness. Oh, the devil made me do it. No, no, you gave yourself over to the lewdness. To work. To put emphasis, the power. You put money, time, and everything behind it. You took steps. It wasn't passive. You actually did actively pursued. All uncleanliness with greediness because you didn't care how it affects other people. Paul says, that cannot be. As a believer, that cannot be. Unsaved men, of course, because they're dead to their sins. They didn't understand. They were spiritually ignorant. The truth and the life go together. So if you believe God's truth, then you receive God's life. But you would think that the unbeliever in his utmost desperation, and you've met these people, they're in drugs and alcohol, and they're losing everything. You would think out of their utmost, in their inner man, would say, I need a solution and I need God. But no, that's not what happens. Most of the time, they'll just ratchet up and look for man's wisdom in other ways to satisfy it. You would think they'd want this terrible spiritual condition that they find themselves in and find a solution, but they don't turn to God because they're darkened. Their heart has been hardened. And the hardness of his heart enslaves him. That's what he means by past feeling because he has so given himself over to sin that sin controls him. If you want to go back and read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 today, it will have more specific uh, explanation to these few verses that we just covered. Now, Paul continues here in verse 20 through 24, and, he, and we see the reason why Paul is writing this to them, why that there has to be a change in your life when you're a believer. And the reason he says right here, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to this deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. 
So Paul here sits here and he reinforces his counsel. He's reinforcing the counsel to those who are reading this letter for then and for you and I today. He's saying, here's the argument to the reason why the state that you are in and what is going on here. He says, but you have not so learned Christ. To learn Christ, what does that mean? It means to have a personal relationship to Christ so that you get to know him better each day. To learn Christ, it's a personal relationship. You want to know on a daily basis more and more and more of who Christ is in that relationship. He did not say learn about Christ because you can learn about Christ, but that would never bring you to a saving grace. The devil knows about Jesus that does not bring him to a saving grace. You and I can learn all kinds of things about a dead man. Read the books that were written about him. Read and listen to the people and the letters that were written about him. But you only know about the man. You don't know of the who it is because you have not known him personally. Christ is talking, don't learn about me. I need to know, you need to know that you can learn Learn me, meaning it's a, I'm alive in a well and you can dwell with me and talk to me and walk with me and, and spend time with you. You can worship me. You can hear my voice. You can listen to me as I guide you through the day to day. This is to learn Christ. And he, Paul's saying here, you have not learned Christ. You only learn about Christ. And you must learn him. How do you know your children Fathers and mothers, how do you learn? Do you, do you read books about your children? My child has a strong-willed child, and let me read this book, and this is going to tell me how to put the book away. Sit and focus and learn of who your child is and how God has created him. Let God show you through his eyes who he created Stop listening to the books that are out there that tells you what your kids should or shouldn't be doing by the age of six weeks. The book tells me a child should be walking by and get out of diapers by this time. Will you stop listening to the websites and the, and the blogging going on? That would cut out half of the conversations, I think, around this place at times. But talk about the things of God and how God created that child and how God will give you the wisdom necessary as a parent to minister and to raise them up according to the bestseller? No. But yes, really, because the Bible is the bestseller, is it not? It still has sold more books than any other book that's available. So why would you go to any other book than the Bible to raise your children? I don't understand. Go to the scriptures. Go to God and let him give you the wisdom to raise them up according to what he desires. Amen? I'll get off that one. See, as believers, a new man, their minds are no longer darkened. Your minds are no longer darkened. Your lives are no longer alienated from God. 
Your lives are no longer, their hearts are no longer hardened and impure. Christ is the subject you heard him. You heard his voice. You gave your life to Christ. And then your whole sphere, your whole surrounding of your life, he then, you are taught by him directly. The changed life. This teachings and learning in accordance with the truth because he is the truth, John 14, 6. And to turn anywhere else for truth, uh, how to live this life, you are being misled. You must come back to the scriptures and who he is. This fellowship is based on the word of God. I can be taught the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. The better I understand the word of God, the better I know the son of God. For the whole Bible is a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you go back in Luke 24, 27 and John 5, 39. The whole scripture is who Christ is. And so we spend time in the word to know him more. Because that's who gives you life. That's who is, brings you through this life. And that's who's going to bring you into eternity with him the rest of your life. Why would you turn to anyone else any place else than the scriptures because he is the word. But the unsaved man is spiritually ignorant while the Christian is intelligent in the things of the word. The unsaved man does not know Christ while the believer grows in his personal knowledge of Christ day by day. We have believed, we have believed the truth, we have received the life Therefore, we must walk in the way that the Lord shows us. Not walk after the example of the unsaved world, but walk according to the ways of God. God wants you to fully immerse in who he is. Because as Christians, we don't want just to simply change our minds. We didn't have our minds just simply change. Our entire citizenship changed. Our entire position changed. Our entire way of life changed. What we think, where we go, how we behave, who surrounds our lives, who has influence, who doesn't. All of that changes when you became a believer. If it didn't, you need to ask the question why it didn't. You must ask the question why. We belong to God's new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, the ideas and the desires of the old creation, the old, no longer should control our lives. I mean, the simplest illustration we see in the scripture is John 11. The resurrection of Lazarus. The Lord's great friend, Lazarus, has been in the grave for four days, if you remember, and when Jesus and his disciples arrived in Bethany, he even Martha admitted and said, Whew, this man's been buried four days. This is going to be, the smell is, mm, I, I don't, I don't want to see this. You can see that conversation going on because if you lean on your own understanding, you can sit there and say four days in the grave. Oh, this is not going to be pretty. We've had some houses around here in Watertown. It sounded like maybe someone's been in the grave for four days. And we've had to clean them out. So you know her in her minds, they're like they're going there they're expecting the worst case scenario. But they didn't factor in who Jesus Christ is. 
When Jesus says to his disciples, we're going here to see Lazarus, he understood that he was been buried for four days. He understood. But we see that Jesus spoke the word and Lazarus came out alive. He was once dead and now he's alive. He was once in the grave and in grave clothes, and he was deteriorating. He was starting to stink and wretched, and God spoke. Lazarus heard. Lazarus obeyed. He walked out alive. But it didn't end there, did it? Noticed in your mind the next words he says in John, John 1144, he says, notice, he says, loose him and let him go. He says, go and take those grave clothes that were still wrapped around his head and on his body as he was walking out. Remove them and let him go free. That is the best illustration of what God does to an unbeliever. Dead in their sins, wrapped in grave clothes. And God says, come, they were obedient, they came to Christ. And then he says, you're free, let him go. Remove the grave clothes, you have been given grace clothes instead. And by the grace of God, set them free. See, you no longer belong to the old corruption of sin. You belong to the new creation in Christ. And through Christ, once and for all, we have been given a new position in his new creation. But day by day, we must, by faith, seize what he has given you and I. We must seize it and be obedient and follow through with it. The word of God renews the mind as we surrender of our all to him, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Sanctify them by your truth, because your word is truth, John 17, 17. And as the mind understands the truths of God's word, it is gradually transforming the spirit of your life. It's renewing. It leads you to a changed life that is pleasing to God. Physically, you become what you eat. Spiritually, you become what you think. And if you think about the things of the world and the things on the flesh and you think of the things of this worldliness and unbelievers, you will become what you think. You ponder and meditate on the word of God and you ponder and you apply and obey the word of God, you will become what you think. It's a choice you must and I must make on a daily basis. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he, Proverbs 23, 7. And that is why it's important for us as Christians to spend time daily meditating on the word of God, praying and worshiping and fellowshipping with Christ. It's critical for you and I. In verses 25 through 32, he calls us to action. He says, Paul says, therefore, putting away lying, 
Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from, from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul here is calling to the believers here in Ephesus and to you and I a call to action. Paul was not content to explain the principles of God, the doctrines of God, the things of the truth to God and say, okay, here it is, figure it out. He made it very clear and he highlights very clearly to us the six, or I should say five sins or five changes that need to be made in the life of a, of a believer. He goes on to talk about in verse 31, six vices that can grip you and cause problems. And then at the very end in verse 32, he gives you three promises or three positive things you need to focus your life upon right here in these last few verses. Paul says, I'm not going to sit there and leave you up to vagueness and feel good. I'm going to call it out in the letter here to these Ephesian believers. These are things that you must focus on and get rid of out of your life. What is the first one he says? Lying. The first thing he brings to light is lying. Lying will destroy a life. But the best thing about, I like about Paul is he doesn't sit there and say, stop lying. And then leave you there. Okay, I've been saying that. God help me to stop lying. But he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. Not only does he give you the negative command, stop lying, but he also gives you a positive command and, he, and the reason for that positive command. So he doesn't leave you here. So look at, as we go through these, in verse 25, lying. It says, a lie is a statement that is contrary to fact. It's contrary, it's spoken with the intent to deceive someone. That's lying. And believers are to tell the truth. That's the positive. We're to tell the truth. The belt of truth. That's the part of our armor of God that we will see in chapter 6. We must tell the truth. It keeps the enemy away. It doesn't open up the things for the enemy to get a grip of us. So we must tell the truth. Because truth is conforming to one's words to reality. When you tell the truth, it's reality. If you tell, if I tell you it is, it is, it, it is um, new. Oh, it must be new. Then discover, uh, I looked at my watch later on that I was wrong. I'm sorry, it wasn't noon. It was actually 1130. That's not lying because it was there no intent to deceive. It was just you did not. Speak clearly. You didn't speak rightly. You should have checked before you spoke. 
But there was no intent to deceive someone with that. But if I told you, oh, the gathering is at 12, but the gathering really was at 11, but I did that on purpose because I knew if you come at 12, then you wouldn't get all the brownies at 11, and I can have all the brownies. So then I had the descent of deceit to keep you away from the brownies. Now that's lying. That's, that gets really low. So you don't want to do that. That's, so you have to understand when people sit there and say, oh, you're lying to me. Well, was there was it to deceive you? You have to find that clarity. Or was it the fact that they misspoke and they did not take the time to get the facts before they spoke? Make sure that's clear. Because Satan is a liar. John 8, He's a liar. And he wants us to believe that God is a liar as well. Has God indeed said that you can't eat from the trees of the garden? That's what Satan wants to do in the spiritual things. Did God really promise that he would provide your needs? Or you have to take responsibility and go do it yourself? Did God really say there's one way to heaven? Or all roads? You know, Satan is constantly feeding lies to deceive you in your life. But when you go back to the scriptures and you look what the scripture says and you say, oh, that's from Satan because that is a pure lie because the scripture tells me this. And I will not listen to my own voice or anyone else's voice. I will only listen to God's words. And whenever we speak truth, the spirit of God works in our life. But whenever we tell a lie, Satan goes to work in your life. And it's clear as can be in someone's life whose voice they're listening to and being obedient. We like to believe that we help people by lying to them. But such is not the case. Oh, I had to lie because I really didn't want to hurt them. Anytime you lie is not in an intent to deceive, you are causing challenges because you're opening a foot door for the devil to come in and take a hold of that situation and that relationship. We may not see the sad consequences immediately, but ultimately we will come to a point where you know it and that, that no lie is of the truth, 1 John 2.21. Hell is prepared for whoever, whosoever loves and practices a lie, Revelation 22.15. This does not mean that anybody who was ever told a lie will go to hell, but rather those who live, whose lives are controlled by lies. They love to lie. They make a lifestyle out of lying. They practice lying. They make lies it's just so natural for them because they want to deceive and to get their way. They will be lost for forever. But the Christian life is controlled by truth. That's why Paul said, gave to, for telling the truth. He, we, we belong to each other in Christ. We are to put away lying. We are to tell the truth. Why? Because we dwell with other people. We, 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 we interrelate with, we fellowship with, we live with other people. And it will affect other people if we tell lies. We are to urge us. He urges us to build up the body of the body in Christ in love, Ephesians 4.16, we learned last week. He urged us to build the body in truth and speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. And so as members of one another, we affect each other and we cannot build each other 
up apart from the truth. Remember the first sin. The very first sin in the church we see in Acts 5 verses 1 through 11 was what? Someone in the body lied to others in the body. That's why Paul says, do you want unity? Do you want to walk in purity? Put away lying. He says also to put away anger. Verses 26 and 27, anger is an emotional arousal causing something that displeases us. In itself, anger is not a sin because even God can be angry. We saw that in Deuteronomy 9, 8. In verse 20, and Psalm 2, 12. So God can be angry, a righteous anger that is going against a sin that is apparent. Several times in the Old Testament, the phrase appears, the anger of the Lord, Numbers 25, 4, Jeremiah 4, 8, Jeremiah 12, 13. But the holy anger of God is a part of his judgment against sin as we see and illustrate it in our Lord's anger when he cleansed the temple, Matthew 21, verses 12 and 23, or 12 and verse 13. The Bible speaks of anger as a kindling up like a fire. As though fire or anger can start like a little smoldering. Ooh, I'm angry. And it's just smoldering within. No one even knows. It's not even apparent on your face yet. Just smoldering a little bit. But it never stops there. If it's not extinguished, it never stays as a smolder. It will eventually will work itself up into flames. And it can be this where it comes to the smolder called malice. But then it can get to the same anger. It can blow up and destroy things and people around you. We call it wrath. It always gets more intense. Now, also, we see stealing, verse 28. Christians are not to steal, but are to work in order to give to the needy, Paul says. A thief takes from others. They're always looking to benefit from others. They're always coming around to see what they can take, take, take from the fellowship, of, of, that fellowship with you and him or within the body. Or within anything. They're always looking to see where they can come into a fellowship to gain something for themselves personally. Whereas a believer is to work doing something useful with their, his hands. God, Paul says you must work with your hands for the purpose of sharing with those in need. This is true Christian charity, is it not? Work has many benefits. It provides a person's uh, material needs for their life or their family. It gives him something useful to do that ben is beneficial to himself and others by working with his hands. But it also enables him to help others materially. Helps those others who are in need. That's what God has us have a job. It's not just for you. That's just going to cause you self-implosion. You're going to be selfish and be greedy with the money. God says you're to give. Give to him so you're not get caught into greediness. You're to give to others so you're not get caught into selfishness. These things are help break us through the tithes, gifts, and offerings. And just as Satan is a liar, he is also a murderer. He is also a thief. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, John 10.10. 10. He turned Judas into a thief. 
And he would do the exact same thing to you if you allow him. When he tempted Eve, he led her to believe and become a thief. God said, do not touch the tree, the fruit of the tree. And she became a thief and reached out and grabbed that fruit. And not, never stops with that. Then she turned around and then she caused Adam to turn to become a thief as well because he partaked. The first Adam was a thief. He was cast out of paradise. But the last Adam, Christ, he turned to a thief on a cross. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Which one do you choose? Choose Christ. Put away stealing. He also, Paul, gave a motive. He says we should tell the truth because we are members of one another. We should control our anger lest we give place to the devil. And we should work and not steal so that we might be able to give to him who has need. Very fundamental. As God leads and grows and matures, of course, he's not speaking to those who are disabled and not able to use their hands to work. He's not speaking to them here. He's speaking, and as we also see in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. He's speaking about a lazy Christian who robs himself and others in God because he's not willing to do hard work. That will cause problems within the fellowship of believers and families and society, and we see it today. Then he also speaks about corrupt speech. Believers are not to speak unwholesomely. You don't have to speak, allow rotten things to come out of your mouth. They're supposed to be helpful, good, beneficial words that have purpose of edification, good words that benefit, that give grace and enable to the hearers. The mouth and the heart are connected. We see in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you hear people talk, you can see what is from their heart. And we expect a change in speech when a person becomes a Christian. And it is interesting to trace the word mouth when you study the book of Romans. If you remember when we studied the book of Romans, the word mouth throughout there takes you as a sinner, a sinner's mouth, a, a just rottenness coming out when you're, a, when you're a sinner, full of cursing and bitterness, Romans 3.14. And then, but when the, he trusts in Christ, we see in Romans 10, we see he gladly confesses with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. A changed life. The mouth is changed. As a condemned sinner, his mouth is stopped before the throne of God, Romans 3.19. But as a believer, his mouth is open to praise God, Matthew, or Romans 15.6. A changed heart will cause a change of speech. That should take place. 
It should be one of the first things that others will take notice in your life when you become a child of God. People look and go, you sound different. You act different. You don't, you don't respond the same way. You don't. And as a believer, or do believer, sometimes you go, really? I'm not cussing anymore? Really? I'm not responding out of those kind of words anymore? I'm not partaking of those words around the buddies at work and just kind of fitting in? No, because it turns your stomach. It's rotten. And as a believer, you can't stand it. As a non-believer, you can still stand it. You can handle it. You can still do it and act like it's no big deal. But as a believer, you can't. Cuts you to the core. And the conviction's too great. And the, ch- and the change takes place. But Paul says here, corrupt speech cannot be as a believer. Remember, Paul was a rabbi, an unsaved rabbi. What came out of his mouth as a religious leader, as an unsaved rabbi? But we see in Acts 9, 1, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Here's a religious man put on a pedestal, teaching the word of God, but he was unsaved. He just had the veneer of a religious man. He looked like a Christian, but the mouth revealed that he was not a Christian, that he was a religious front person who was hypocrisy and speaking like a non-believer, because that's what comes from the heart. But when he gave his life to Christ, look what took place in Paul's life. In Acts 9-11, you see the change. He says, behold the praise. He, he stopped praying on the, on the people, and he now started to praying for the people. He it was one step in faith. What a transformation that took place in that, that man's life. The word corrupt means rottenness, worthlessness, bad, of no value. Our words do not have to be dirty to be worthless. Sometimes we come along with the crowd and try to impress people with the fact that we are not as moralistic as we think. Think about Peter. Peter was right there. He was at the fire when Jesus was standing right there. And he comes in the fire to see what's going to happen to Jesus before he went to the cross. And and what happened? This little girl came in alongside him and said, do, are you one of those disciples? And what happened to Peter? He began to curse and to swear at this little girl and say, I do not know the man. That is corrupt speech. And we find that, especially in your early walk when you first get saved, you're around your buddies at work and what happens? You get in these conversations and you want to blend in. So you cuss and you do things and say things and pretend things. Or, oh, oh, I hear you're going to church now. Oh, no, no, I don't go to church. My wife, my wife goes to church. I don't go to church. I just please her. I just want to make her happy. So that's why I go occasionally. But I don't really go. I sit out. That's corrupt speech. Because you don't want people to know that you're saved and you actually do want to go to church. You're trying to save face within the work environment. 
God says, get rid of that. Don't, don't ponder on that. We want to have the appetite of the new life, not the appetite of the old life. And when there, you will permit filthy communication to come out of your mouth, Colossians 3.8, what you're doing is you're opening yourself up to bring you back into that old life of thinking and speech. It says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, Colossians 4.6. Keep in mind that your words have power, either good or evil. And finally, bitterness. Verses 31-32. Bitterness. Believers are to get rid of these six vices. Bitterness wrath or rage, outbursts of anger, that's got to go. Anger, meaning a subtle feeling of anger that's in your life, in your mind. Clamor or brawling, that shouting, that, that, that out-of-control shouting that can come from uh, clamor or brawling. Evil speaking or slander or blasphemy, that's got to go. And malice, that ill will, that wickedness, that ill will that can happen in someone's life. We're to put this off, Paul says. Verses 31 through here. Put it off. Get rid of it. If you don't get rid of it, what's going to happen is we know one thing, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And he lives within, the Holy Spirit lives within a Christian. And when the heart is filled with bitterness and anger and all these things, the Spirit is grieved. Not only is the Holy Spirit grieved, but we see also our sin grieves the God, the Son, who died for us. It grieves Him. We see in the Scripture also that it grieves God the Father who gave us when we trusted Christ. Here Paul puts his finger right on the basic cause of the bitter attitude. You want to know why you might have bitter in your life today? Do you want to know why you have wrath or anger or clamor or evil speaking or malice that seems to be sitting in your life? It's one thing, and that Paul brings it to light for us today. We cannot forgive people. You are not willing to forgive people. And if you're not willing to forgive people who come against you, bitterness can take root. Anger can smolder. Malice can smolder in your life. You must forgive the people of your past. You must forgive the people who are presently coming against you. And you must forgive those who will come against you while you're on this earth. If not, these vices will get a grip of you and will bring you down and will hinder you in your walk with Christ. You must forgive. Let God, deal with it. Give it to the Lord. When you do that, he, Paul finishes here with put on something different. Put off that, but put on this new man. And what is that? The positive commandments what he gives here is to be kind. Be kind. Do what is suitable, what is fitting for the need, what is right, what is good. Two, be tender-hearted. It means to be compassionate, to, to, to come alongside that inner motions of affection, to be compassionate for one another. And thirdly, be forgiving. 
Paul says to be forgiving, to freely, to give freely, to give graciously as a favor. Why? Why are we to be kind? Why are we to be compassionate or tenderhearted? Why are we to be forgiven or be forgiving? It's because that is who Christ is. That is who our Savior is. He is kind. He is compassionate. He is gracious to you as a believer. We are to also be Christ-likeness. That is the command that is given to us. Put off the junk. Put on Christ, which is good and right. That is how we're going to be able to walk in purity in this life. We must. We know the word. Now we must be obedient. Amen?